Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brittany Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 90th, hell yeah, 90th episode of the Nauticast titled Beauty and the Beasts, plural, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Sansa 2 in which the princess in the tower, who is not Ariane, is sought out by two brave knights who want to spirit her away to freedom. Well, neither of them are exactly knights, and, um, well, both of them are completely fucking drunk. Gosh, Sansa, can you catch a break sometime? She just really can't when it comes to rescuers, can she, Emmett? There's just no way out for Sansa Stark. The constant mood of this chapter is her shrugging her shoulders and going, oh, it's just it's just <laughs> disappointment all the way down. It is seemingly every single time we engage with a Sansa chapter it is constant disappointments. Hopefully that'll pick up for at some point. We might have to wait till the end of A Storm of Swords, maybe until the end of A Feast for Crows, maybe until the winds of winter until it actually, actually picks up for her. This is this is a bleak business we've gotten ourselves into, Jeff. What were we thinking? I, I don't know. I guess we're just bleak people, ultimately. <laughs> I think is what we're going to. We're just That's like, the subtext. You're not supposed to tell them that, oh, Jeff. Sorry, You're supposed I, to infer that over the course of listening to the podcast. I made the subtext text again. I it's do one that, of your like, many skills. One of my many, yeah, faults. Okay, so <laughs> whew, this episode is brought to you by our small council patrons on Patreon. Our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Master Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaster June, Hill of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard C. Lord Bravos, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Ryan, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, and Sir Sorsadelica. Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in all episodes, will potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winsmithers sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Josh Snow, a sworn sword patron, who asks, Hello, Stannis bros. Hello. <laughs> I was wondering, of all your theories for the remainder of A Song of Ice and Fire, which would you be most glad to be wrong about? Mine personally is John will completely lose emotional contact with his Stark siblings after his resurrection. Oh, that is a brutal one to be sure. So what do you think, Jeff? What do you what do you most want to be wrong in, about? I know that's an agonizing question for you. <laughs> wrong as you never are. I, I mean, is there is there like any positive theories that I feel like that we have going forward for the remainder of this series that I'm like, oh yeah, this is gonna turn out very positively for these characters. John is definitely going to kill Dan Daris Targaryen at the end of a dream of spring. Tom and Marcella are absolutely doomed. Jon Snow is going to be less concerned concerned about human life and more feral as he comes back after being inside of ghosts is, is there like any positive theories where i'm like yeah i really want this to happen at the end of the story i, I guess I think, king bran maybe king bran i think there you go. i think pod's gonna be okay once he's okay. not being hanged by zombie catalan right but we don't once even know past, if he's, yeah once he's past that an utterly unshakable trauma i think will be justified but true true it's just it's just gonna be a horror show all the way down i love it but um, I, one I talked about was uh, Tyrion killing Penny. I talked about that mm. the other week. I th- the signs are really strong, especially when you get to his released Winds of Winter chapter and he's fantasizing about doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, but I really, that's just, that, that's a level of brutal that I, I'm certainly willing to see an execution. I feel like it could potentially be piling on given where Tyrion's character is already going. But I could also see it as a perfect tipping point for where Tyrion is going also. So I could see that being part of it. I, I agree. And I think that's I think it's where I come down to. I mean, we, we could joke around about like all these theories, all these just dark theories. But at the same time, George has said that The Winds Winter is going to be his darkest book yet, which <laughs> given where we are at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Da- a Dance with Dragons is, 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 is not a happy book. Yeah. I, I, I when, think, when your main motif is cannibalism. Right. Not a happy book. No. And, and that's just something that I, I, I feel like. I mean, I feel like some of the stuff that we talk about, like I, I'll single out one since you brought up the, the Tyrion Kills Penny one. I, I'm pretty certain that Tommen and Marcella are, are absolutely doomed. We talked about this in several episodes. Specifically, we talked about, about it in Tyrion's first chapter from the Game of Thrones. So if you want to go all the way back to like episode eight of the Not A Cast podcast, you can hear us talk about that. But I mean, these kids, they, they didn't 
do anything wrong. They've they've never done anything wrong, but they're still going to die because all of these adults are playing the Game of Thrones. And some of these adults are playing it wrongly, in the case of Dora Martell, and trusting the Sand Snakes too much, dispatching them out to King's Landing without really so much as a word of word of an order besides just wait for me to give you something to do. That's going to lead to a lot of problems for Team Doran Martell and Team Preserve the the lives of the innocents come the winds of winter when you have these brutally murderous people who want to brutally murder children entering into King's Landing without anything really to constrain their behavior. So that's something I don't want to see happen, but I think it's absolutely going to happen at the same time. There's just so much about A Song of Ice and Fire in terms of theorizing and where the books are going to go forward, where I I do feel like there's going to be a, a lot of darkness before there's any real hint of light, I want to say. I mean, at the same time, I think that George can do interesting things. And, you know, Theon. Theon's chapters in A Dance with Dragons are really, really fucked up and hard to read sometimes. They're great chapters, though. But it all ends with him being deposited in front of Asha and reclaiming his name and saying, Theon, my name is Theon. Like, it's still like, you know, makes, still makes, you guys can't see because you're not on a video this time, but <laughs> still makes the hair on my, on my arm kind of lift up a little bit because it's a very emotive moment. So I think that George can redeem some of the darkness by adding some good endings for some of these characters and some good end states. But I think a lot of what we're going to see, especially in wins is going to be very, very dark. And you got to go through the dark to get the light to make it mean more. I think that's definitely the principle he's working with him. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of uncomfortable, unfair violence in the winds of winter specifically. Like Tom mm-hmm. Marcel is a good example of that. Shireen mm-hmm. is another good example of that. Young Griff is probably going to be some version of that. I mean, he's, slightly older than those other ones slightly more in charge of things but still it's probably going to be feel very unfair when that kid gets squashed and that's going to feel i think deliberately unsatisfying in a lot of ways Hmm. and i wonder how we're going to deal with that in terms of appreciating that because something that i don't think we proved really willing to do with feast and dance is deal with clearly deliberate dissatisfaction Hmm. like when you get to dance like john and danny's entire dance arcs are written around telling you that you shouldn't be excited about what they're doing (laughs) and you you shouldn't have been cheering like you know it's dance again is a kind of blunt book in terms of how it deals with the audience like theon and cersei's chapters in dance are very much like how dare you want these people punished you're the problem here reader mm-hmm. and i get why those books were unpopular for those reasons but wins is going to be that time is a billion so i hope i just i hope we're ready for it in that regard should we be so lucky to receive it should we be so lucky <laughs> indeed so, thank you, Sir Josh Snow, for the question. If you'd like to have your burning ice and fire question answered here on the Nauticast podcast, you are welcome to join our Patreon as a sworn sword or higher patron. Additionally, our latest Patreon-only episode, Rise Again, let me try that again, Rise Again, <laughs> a complete analysis of the Great Joy Rebellion is out now for all our $5 and above patrons. You can ask us questions, find all 22 bonus episodes, get show notes, and early access for all our episodes over at patreon.com forward slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Yes, indeed. But enough about Patreon. When we well, let's turn our attention now to Sansa Stark. When we last checked in with her, she had just attended the Tourney of Nats, saved Dantos Hollard's life, and witnessed the entry of Tyrion and his band of Rough Riders into King's Landing. Let's see what happens to Sansa Stark in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Sansa Two. Come with me if you want to live. So says Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a letter that Sansa Stark clutches. Well, more accurately, the letter actually says, "Come to the Godswood tonight if you want to go home." Sansa's read the letter a hundred times, having found it beneath her pillow, but she doesn't know how the letter arrived or who placed it there. Come to the Godswood tonight, if you want to go home. Maybe Sansa should give the letter to Cersei to prove her loyalty to Joffrey. But then again, the bruise that Sir Marin Trant left on her stomach after punching her with a mailed fist points decidedly against going to Cersei. Come to the Godswood tonight, if you want to go home. On one hand, Sansa prays that a true knight has come at last to save her. Maybe it was one of the Redwine twins. Maybe Sir Barristan or Beric Dondarrion, who Jane Poole loved. Come to the Godswood tonight, if you want to go home. On the other hand, it could be a cruel joke on Joffrey's part. Or maybe it was a design trap to have Sansa reveal her disloyalty. Would Sir Ilan Payne be waiting for her in the Godswood with ice in hand? Come to the Godswood tonight, if you want to go home. The door opens and a serving girl comes in, asking if Sansa wants a bath. No, but she'll take a fire in the hearth all the same. Sansa wonders if the serving girl had read the note. Maybe she planted it? If, well, maybe, probably not. Cersei had serving girls changed every fortnight to prevent them from becoming sympathetic and friendly to Sansa, so Sansa thinks this is unlikely. When the hearth fire is burning, Sansa dismisses the servants who gives her a sly look because, well, Sansa figures she's probably spying for Cersei or Varys. When she's gone, Sansa burns the letter. Come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. 
Sansa walks over to the window and sees that Sir Preston Greenfield is manning the dry moat tonight. And while, yes, she did have, well, some sort of freedom of the castle, questions would be asked of her as to why she's out and about at this time. So she gets into bed, but she doesn't sleep. She waits. If only she had someone to tell her what to do. She missed Septimer Dana and even more Jane Poole, her truest friend. The Septa had lost her head with the rest for the crime of serving House Stark. Sansa did not know what had happened to Jane, who had disappeared from her rooms afterward, never to be mentioned again. She had tried not to think of them too often, yet sometimes the memories came unbidden, and then it was hard to hold back the tears. Sansa was even missing Arya these days. She kind of assumes that Arya was back at Winterfell with Bran Rickon, which, <laughs> sad to say, not the case, Sansa. But then Sansa hears the disturbance outside, men shouting, but she's not sure what they're saying. Then she hears horses, so she creeps, just to keep it on the down low, on over to the window, and then she sees men running with spears and torches. She wonders if she should get back into bed as all the news has been bad of late, with everyone outside the Red Keep killing and robbing each other. Hmm, those damn peasants killing and robbing each other outside the Red Keep. The nobles would never stoop to that level. Never in the Red Keep, especially. Would they? Go to bed, Sansa thinks. She turns away from the window, but not to bed. She runs to her wardrobe, wondering if she's mad as she changes into clothes. She sees torches on the wall and wonders if Stannis and Renly have finally come to put Joffrey down. She runs out of the room, but not before grabbing a kitchen knife and hiding it under her sleeve. If it is some trap, better that I die than let them hurt me more, Sansa told herself. Oh, fuck. That's a sad line I never noticed before. <sighs> she moves into the night, passing by Lannister's soldiers and gold cloaks getting ready for battle. She sees Sir Preston and then to her horror, she sees Joffrey. Fortunately, he doesn't see her as he shouts for crossbow and sword. She keeps moving, not looking behind her so as not to be caught by Joffrey or followed by him either. She climbs serpentine steps and reaches the top out of breath. She runs down a hallway, catching her breath against a wall when she feels something at her leg. She jumps, but only to find a black tomcat with a chewed off ear who proceeds to spit before darting off. She arrives at the godswood and it's quiet with the sounds of war in the distance. Sansa thinks Lady would have liked being here and how natural and peaceful the godswood was. But there was something else about the godswood too. There was something wild about a godswood, even here in the heart of the castle, at the heart of the city. You could feel the old gods watching with a thousand unseen eyes. <laughs> a thousand unseen eyes, maybe one more. I mean, that's that's interesting language. I know Blood Ravens maybe probably not invented, but at the same time, very, very fascinating language that George is using here. Sansa had been a believer in the faith of the seven, mostly on account of the sensory trappings of it all. Statues, pictures, burning incense, septums with robes and crystals, the rainbow lights when the light caught... When the light caught the inlaid altar, all the jewels and colors. Hey, George, am I to understand you may just might have grown up Catholic here? Maybe, possibly. Mm -hmm. Yet she could not deny that the godswood had a certain power too, especially by night. Help me, she prayed. Send me a friend, a true knight to champion me. Sansa feels her way around the godswood, wondering if she should call out or something. But then a voice calls out to her. I feared you would not come, child. Sansa spins around and sees a heavy dude wearing a dark, gray wool cloak. She's not sure who he is until a ray of moonlight falls on his face. Sir Dantos, she breathed heartbroken. Was it you? Dantos says, yes, it's a me, a Sir Dantioso. Okay, I gotta stop fucking, I gotta stop doing that line. Sansa smells the wine on him and shrinks away from him. She grabs her knife and tells him to stay back. Also, why the fuck are you here, Dantos? Only to help you, Sir Dantos says, as you help me. Sansa asks if he's drunk and he does a bit that I've never ever done with my wife, not even one time where he's like, I only had one drink. I promise, babe. Mm -hmm. Danto states that they'll have the skin stripped off his back if he's caught, and Sansa wonders what they'll do to her if she's caught. She thinks of Lady knowing that her dire wolf could smell out lies, but Lady was dead. Ned killed her. She holds out the knife, telling Dantos to tell it true. Who sent him? No one, sweet lady. I swear it on my honor as a knight. Sansa doesn't exactly believe this. You see, Dantos had been stripped of knighthood by Joffrey. He was only a fool now. She prayed for a knight to come, but the gods had only sent a drunken fool. Dantos agrees with Sansa's assessment here. I know it's queer, but all those years I was a knight, I was truly a fool. And now that I am a fool, I think I think I might find it in me to be a knight again, sweet lady. And all because of you, your grace, your courage. You saved me, not only from Joffrey, but from myself. His voice dropped. The singers say there was a fool once who was the greatest knight of all. <gasps> Florian, Sansa whispered. Dantos wants to play the Florian archetype to Sansa's Jonko archetype, so he falls to his knees and Sansa finally lowers her knife. She thinks she's crazy for trusting this guy, but he's her only option. She asks how Dantos will get her out of the Red Keep, and he says that the hard part is getting out of the castle. But then they take a ship. He'll just need to find the coin. Maybe a master <laughs> will provi we'll provide the coin, if you know what I mean. Okay, well, Sansa wants to leave the Red Keep and King's Landing right now, but not so fast. Dantos needs to figure out a plan when the hour is right. 
Also, Sansa, can you please actually put the knife away at this point? Thank you. And then when she finally puts the knife away, Dantos rises to his feet, stating that he watched bad things happen to Ned. But Sansa helped him when he was powerless. And sure, he's not some story hero like Ryan Redwine or Barristan the Bold, but he was a knight back in the day. His life is hers. He swears it in front of the godswood. He swore a solemn oath before the gods. Then I will put myself in your hands, sir. Sansa wonders how she'll know when it's time to go. Maybe he'll put another letter on a pillar or something? Eh, unlikely. Sansa needs to come to the godswood as often as she can, and Dantos will come when able. The godswood is the only safe place as the, quote, stones have ears. Additionally, Dantos will appear to be cruel and mocking towards her in public, but he's just playing a role, just kind of playing the part to prevent the both of them from getting dead quick, fast, in a hurry. Sansa says she understands, but Dantos needs to get gone now. And so does Sansa. They can't be seen together. Nodding, Sansa took a step, then spun around, nervous, and softly laid a kiss on his cheek, her eyes closed. My Florian, she whispered. The gods heard my prayer. Sansa runs back in the direction of her room, her head swimming with thoughts of Florian the Fool and Junkwool, and how the song was her favorite. And then Sandra Clegane steps right in front of her path, blocking her before she can get down the serpentine steps. Poor Sansa. It's a long roll down the serpentine, little bird. Want to kill us both? His laughter was rough as saw on stone. Maybe you do. Sansa tries to excuse herself, but his hand squeezes her wrist tight. Sandra asks what Sansa is doing up here, and Sansa says, um, I was at the godswood praying, yes, praying for her dad's soul and for Joffrey. Well, Sandra isn't in the mood to believe her, but he loosens his grip on her arm before very gallantly telling her that she's almost a woman, that she's almost a woman now, tall with tits and all. But she still sings songs like some bird. Sing me a song, why don't you? Go on, sing to me. Some song about knights and fair maids. You like knights, don't you? Sansa's pretty fucking freaked out, and doubly so when Sandra reveals that he's real fucking drunk. But no matter, he's going to do the escort Sansa back someplace while saying things at her. It's a bit at this point. Back at the drawbridge, Sansa notices that Sir, ba that Sir Boris Blount is manning the bridge, and Sansa feels scared. This Kingsguard knight, who is an asshole who I hate, hits her a lot. But Sandra says that she shouldn't be afraid of Boros. He's just a toad with stripes. But Boros accosts Sansa and Sandra when they approach, calling Sandra a sir before Sandra heavily tells him to fuck you, sir. Sandra's no knight. Boros asks Sansa what she's doing up and Sansa lies again, but better this time, saying she went to the godswood to pray for Joffrey. Yeah, Sandra puts in, it's too loud to sleep. What's up with all this noise? Well, it seems the peasants thought they could partake in Tyrek Lannister's wedding feast. So Joffrey, brave, brave King Joffrey, led a sortie to chase them away. A brave boy, Clegane said, mouth twitching. Let's see how brave he is when he faces my brother, Sansa thought. Sansa, hi Chloe, moves on from the drawbridge and up the stairs to her room. And it's there that Sansa asks Sander why he lets people call him a dog. Well, it's because Sander likes dogs better. Besides, Granddaddy Clegane was kennel master to Titus Lannister, and he and his dogs saved Lord Titus Lannister from, the, from a lioness. Three of the dogs died and his grandpa lost his leg, but he got a keep and lands in the exchange. The three dogs on our banner are the three that died in the yellow of autumn grass. A hound will die for you, but never lie to you, and he'll look you straight in the face. Sansa cups Sansa's chin and tells her that dogs do no do more than birds can do for her, but he never got a song. I I, I know a song about Florian Jonquil. Ah, well, Sanders not down for what the kids are listening to these days, but he will get a song from Sansa one of these days. Sansa says she'll gladly sing for him. Sandra Clegane snorted. Pretty thing, and such a bad liar. A dog could smell a lie, you know. Look around, you would take a good whiff. They're all liars here. And everyone better than you. And that is The Clash of Kings, Sansa 2. Hey, Emmett, what would your reaction be if I told you that Sansa is continuing to grow on me in this read? Utter shock, sir. It's not <laughs> something we've discussed over the course of the series. It's the, it's the first time I'm hearing of it. But as you've said, it really feels like each POV arc in A Clash of Kings really takes off with their second chapter, after the first chapter sets the stakes and reminds us who everyone is and what they're about. From the very first lines of Sansa to, come to the gods with tonight if you want to go home, George is setting up the through line that will dominate Sansa's story for the next book and a half, as well as providing the perfect crucible for her character arc. How she responds to this opportunity speaks to both her growing maturity and her desire to regress into childhood, much like her little brother Bran at Winterfell. But it also speaks to the, to the dichotomous nature of the two main supporting characters in Santa's Clash of Kings storyline, Dantos Hollard and Sandra Clegane, the Not Knights. So, the question, does George write Sansa well? Well, of course he does. Yes, 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 we've been there. But is he effective in giving Sansa a unique voice and unique character and plot conflicts to make for a good story? 
Okay, so here I continue my tradition of Mia Culpa's about Sansa Stark. In the past, he said yes to the above, with, but within the context of Sansa being the annoying hashtag worst Stark. Now that I'm older, wiser, much more mature, I was wrong. Okay, we got that out of the way. Good. I feel like I have to do this for every single Sansa episode we do. In rereading this chapter and many of the chapters upcoming in her Clash and Storm arcs, I see a better story than the one I thought I had previously read. You know, dismissing Sansa as the, quote, annoying damsel in distress character does a disservice to the story that George is telling with Sansa. Yeah, she's certainly in distress, but the internal character character conflict of being alone and stranded in the hostile social setting and environment she once viewed as the ideal place for her has become a nightmare. I mean, this is a point you brought up really well back when we did this uh, Game of Thrones Sansa 5. And I, I think this chapter hammers it home for me. And it all starts with come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. Salvation, a trap, a joke. It's unclear at the start, but it's a masterful, but it's a masterful refrain introducing us to the new nightmare reality that is Sansa's life in the Red Keep. It's that, that uncertainty that makes these chapters so powerful. It's that interplay of blood and roses where you're not sure of the ground Sansa is standing on. Where is she in a completely new reality? Or do the songs and stories still carry some weight? And you get a lot of signs in both directions. And on the one hand, she's a world where the king and his king guard, king's guard regularly beat her. On the other hand, how does her Clash of Kings story end with Dantos Hollard skipping around the room going, Oh, the banner, sweet Sansa. Oh, to be a knight. <laughs> Like, George ends it that way for a reason, to suggest, no, those ideas still have power. Those shadows on a wall still intersect with the stories and the songs every bit as, as much as they do with the more cold Machiavellian politics that we've, you know, talked about early on in The Clash of Kings. And you see that right away with the letter in terms of how Sansa deals with it. And something I like about Sansa's chapters in The Clash of Kings and The Storm of Swords is how they work in context with Tyrion's or Catalan's, the ones more versed in directly using power. Sansa is shut out of this, the decision-making process, so she's left with the front-facing image of power, whether it's attempting to be seductive or bleeding her dry for all to see. The conspiracies shape her, not the other way around. You know, she's she's left with just the dress, right, early on in mm. Storm of Swords, whereas in the Tyrion chapters we see the, the politicking behind the scenes. And this puts her in a reactive position, which, in my opinion, is not to say that she's a passive character, because George is constantly zooming in on her decisions, on what she does with what little she has in preparation for gradually widening her scope when she gets to the veil with Littlefinger. Now take this letter. It's a mystery that she cannot possibly solve, given what little she has to work with. Even when she learns it was Dantos who sent it, she just doesn't have enough information to figure out who his patron is. But George still takes time to show a Sansa trying to figure out what's up with the letter. And in the process, we get to see Sansa starting to understand how this works. She starts to understand what questions you ask, even if she does not have the ability to find the answers right now. Like, let's what, run down what Sansa knows from just this letter. <laughs> she knows that she can't trust it, right? She knows that this might be a trap. She knows that this might not lead anywhere. She knows that this, this might not be worth the risk of following it up. I might be better off if I pretend I never saw this. She knows that she can't trust her maids, both that the maids seem, you know, not super competent, but also that they're probably spies for someone, because why mm -hmm. wouldn't they be? She's already started to kind of internalize that lesson, like, spy until proven otherwise in King's Landing. <laughs> you know, like, that's how you got to deal with everyone. She knows that she can't trust Joffrey, that this is specifically could be a trap set by Joffrey, and that she, this is the kind of game he likes to play. She's learned this about him. She knows that Cersei would 100% reward her for this, which is... Yeah, you know, not the most admirable, heroic of thoughts, but as, as I'll get into in a little bit, it's a completely understandable one in her circumstances, and it's one she's right about. Cersei, you know, this is not a plan Cersei knows about, and if she were to know about it, she would be quite pleased with Sansa for <laughs> revealing it to her. But underneath all of that, Sansa is also dealing with the fact that this might be genuine. This mm. might be her way out, and if she, she re rejects this... She has no plan, and there's something so skin-crawling about that, about trying to live every day with not even a plan to escape, not even a fragile, futile, childish plan to escape. Psychologically, that's so difficult to face, and I think maybe more than anything, that's maybe why Sansa goes with this, because she needs something for her brain to work on <laughs> while she's stuck in captivity. And she, so she runs through all those risks and all those opportunities with admirable clarity, and she sensibly holds back when there's a guard in the way, and then she risks it when he leaves. She's making, you know, these, these smart steps. But she is still caught between worlds. She is still caught between ideals. She knows that the Lannisters killed her father and can't be trusted. But she also desperately wants to please the people who can and have hurt her. That's why she wants to please Cersei. Not because she really still thinks that Cersei's the ideal of the Golden Queen. It's because she knows Cersei can protect her. There's no one left to protect her, so Sansa has to try to find whatever source for it she can. That's not an expression of weakness, in my opinion, so much as just a desire for control over her life. Every bit as much as Arya's murder list, it's just in a different form for a different situation. 
there's there's a great parallel between the series that both you and I love, which is Battlestar Galactica, and the very in the very the mini episodes. So that three and a half hour mini uh, mini sode mini sode the three and a half hour mini mini series. God, Ugh. Uh, there's there's the whole at the end of the just spoil it for you for all five or six of you that haven't been watching the very end of the of the episode. The Admiral Adama, Captain Adama, makes the speech that we can't just simply survive. We have to survive for something, right? And that's what's going on here with Sansa, is that she simply can't exist to survive in the Red Keep and around all of these people that, as Tyrion is going to later talk about, is like, you're as loyal as a deer surrounded by lions. And that's that's not living, really. That's not living for a purpose. So she ends up having to trust what's in this letter because it's... Because the alternative is is that life is miserable and full of pain, as George often writes when he's talking about the Jets and Giants on his Nada blog. <laughs> I was yeah, men shall not live by bread alone. I think it's an important concept, and it's one that it's a way for Sansa to re-understand her relationship to the songs and stories as just like a, something to cling to and a structure to give her mind meaning. Yeah, and kind of at the same time though, like as we're doing. Looking at Sansa, and I think we have to look at Sansa a little bit similar to another character in the form of Bran Stark. So we know that Bran's ultimate endgame is revealed by David Benioff and Dan Weiss, is that he'll become king of Westeros at some level, king of the north, whatever, whatever he's going to be. At the same time, I think like Sansa's endgame at the end of season eight is queen of the north. And I think we're seeing George also working a parallel leadership arc for Sansa where she's starting to get beyond the stories and the archetypal roles that she's come to love throughout her entire childhood and she's becoming much more attuned to how power actually works and how much she should actually trust people these are very important skill sets when you take into a place of, of royalty of, be, of being the queen of the north that she has to be a bit more a bit more distrusting of people than what than what she's always had to than what she's lived her life in currently and that is really an interesting dynamic when you consider the end game, what that we have George always working both internally within the chapter to build Sansa's arc internally in the book of a clash of Kings on towards the end point. But we also have the larger picture of where Sansa is going to end up in the story in a song of ice and fire proper. And I think this chapter works to do both of those things really, really well, both building up the relationship between Sansa and her hero, hero, hero. Okay. Her, <laughs> not hero, but, but Sir Dantos as well as building up to be queen of the North. As with both Sansa and Bran, I think you can sense that George is trying to educate and then crown the fantasy reader in mm -hmm. a way, because that's about both Sansa and Bran are framed, especially in the first book, as loving the songs and stories. So in a way, that's like George saying, like, okay, here's how I think of the young fantasy reader. I'm going to take him on this deconstructive journey at the end. They will be worthy of stepping into their songs and stories as, as proper leaders. That's that's kind of the arc you could see him expressing with both of those characters. And part of that is being is being brought to this position of understanding, oh, you can't just assume that the world is going to work that way. You have to make yes. it. You have to do, wrestle with your own ignorance and your own limitations. And that's important that Sansa takes that step in this chapter that she knows how much she doesn't know, which is yeah. very critical. She admits at some point, like, I really can't back up any of these different scenarios. I have no evidence. I really wish there was someone else here who could advise me, who could suggest what to do. Even when she does make the decision, she goes, she tells herself, this is probably a terrible idea. I might completely regret this. And that's that's vital because that'll help every step of the way in terms of Sansa probing her own instincts. Because that's the problem with the worldview she inculcated in the book one is not that, you know, she liked shiny things and bright tournament days and excitement and whatnot. The problem was that she was accepting those things unquestioningly and yes. believing that everyone's going to live to those values and was not looking at things critically. Now she's starting to look at things critically. It's interesting, though, too, is that she's also taking a knife to this meeting in the Godswood, right? Where in the past, she might just go unarmed. But now she's taking this perspective that she's not going to go there unarmed and that she's willing to die if this turns out to be a lie. I mean, she's, she basically says she's willing to commit suicide if this turns out to be a ploy by Joffrey or the Lannisters or Cersei to bring ill and pain in front of her. Right, and who knows if that's genuine, right? I mean, like in, the, in book sure. one, she also thought, I shall kill myself and I'll all be sorry, but she didn't actually do that. And like, I get, I don't mean to be glib towards Sansa, but it is part of her still childish sentiment that she is no, thinking true. in heightened romantic terms that she probably would not carry out. But again, that's it's a coping mechanism. It's part of how, you know, people in these kind of environments, you just, you, you need fiction you need stories you need your, you need coping mechanisms that that make you feel like you're in control even if it's never something you would be able to do it's something you need to hold on to and i, I think you get the, the sense of george playing with genre and how, how sansa is relating to it with just the imagery we get some great no noirish imagery as sansa flees the castle for the godswood 
Yeah, the serpentine steps twisted ahead, striped by bars of flickering light from the narrow windows above, and uh, there was something wild about a godswood. The air was rich with the smells of earth and leaf, and it's it's very shadowy and, and midnight, and it, it's, 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 it's an interesting kind of tone, that noir tone, to incorporate with all the chivalric fantasy themes of this chapter, and that gets at the truth, which is that Dantos isn't actually a paladin, he's a spy. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. not actually part of the fantasy genre in terms of what he's doing. He's part of like the noir detective genre. He's he's gathering and, and sending on information. And he's just he's just playing the part of the paladin. And to, to give him some credit, he plays it very well. You know, he Dantos knows all these lines to a T, right? He tells her that she won his heart when she saved his life, that she gave him purpose. He was reborn in her grace and her mercy. <laughs> like he knows the script. This is precisely the sort of language that Sansa, Sansa loved. It's all about chivalry as transformation. Right. Remember what Ned said to Liana. Robert will be a different man once he's married. That's the promise. That's the idea. You will be a different man. You will go through this experience at the end of Cinderella, at the end of Sleeping Beauty, at the end of Snow White. You will be this different person. It's the elevation of the mundane to divine through poetry. And what gives Sansa pause is that he had to get reeling drunk to play (laughs) that part. In the wake of her golden prince and her golden queen turning out to be monsters, she's a little wary of someone who comes in just singing of love and roses. But she still wants to believe, and she's out of options. So so trusting Dantos, what I'm saying, is neither a surrender to childhood nor a leap to adulthood. It's kind of both. They're kind of combined and made inextricable here. It's Sansa steps into adulthood on the the back of her children's stories. Hmm. Really what Sansa is hoping for here is that children's stories will save her from the abyss. And that is, I think, more and more a common thing these days, I feel like, in media consumption that we, this is not just about Game of Thrones, it's only partially about Game of Thrones, <laughs> that we want happy endings as a way to deal with the fact that we increasingly don't think we're going to get one in real life. I think for mm-hmm. a lot of people our ish age or younger, that that's a sensation about how things are heading for us as a generation. And I think that's part of how we relate to our children's stories. Is we, we, we're kind of clawing back to them as, as the last time we had some, something resembling optimism. And I think that's kind of why you get kind of angry factionalism in, around a lot of shows and a lot of people <laughs> clinging to what is objectively children's media as though it's anything but that. And I think that's something Sansa's going through as a character. And to give Sansa credit, there are real adult stakes and decisions involved in what she's doing here. That she is agreeing to difficult things that she has to wait in this horrible situation she's agreeing to that she's agreeing to stay quiet she's agreeing to let dantos play his part to be cruel to her in public she's agreeing to that all of that requires self-mastery on her part a great deal of courage and commitment on the other hand though there are still things that are are flying right over her head like his his sexual creepiness Mm. which is another part of again how george is playing with the chivalric themes because Something that Sansa knows, even if she doesn't quite know it as a conscious level, is that those chivalric stories were about sex, that they were about romantic courting, a way, a socially approved way for a man and woman to end up naked in bed together. This is the story, the process by which that happens. And also chivalric stories tell the story of women running away with, with strange knights, and those tend to end tragically to show young girls, hey, you shouldn't do that sort of thing. You should stay with your socially approved husband and not wreck your dad's land deal by running up with some hedge knight who doesn't have any land. That's the idea. And and Sansa is starting to realize those kind of those darker or theater adult realities. And George is bringing to them to the service with a character like Dantos, whose interest in Sansa is clearly not entirely chivalric or not entirely mm-hmm. nice and also not entirely about helping Littlefinger. At some level, Dantos does want to have sex with Sansa and he's not really good about hiding it. And Sansa does pick up on that and she does feel the need to play along with it. Like when she kisses his cheek and she's like, oh, this is the part. This is the mm. part I'm playing. But Dantos, Dantos is a little too eager to play that part. It comes through and Sansa, I don't know if she really realizes it, but I do think the audience is supposed to realize it. And I, it's really unpleasant, but I think it's deliberately done and appropriately done given the context of the deconstruction George is working with. And he's, he's showing Sansa, hey, here's what, here's what those songs were only implying. Here's what it really looks like in practice. Right. And this also, we have to also have to evaluate that against what's going to happen in her later chapters in A Clash of Kings, where she actually has her flowering. So she's on the cusp of her start of her sexual maturity. And I think the George having Dantos here and having Sansa kind of getting it and kind of not getting it works in that context of someone actually entering into maturity. And that's 
really kind of creepy in terms of Dantos, like you said. And I think it's also speaking of that overall creepiness in the way that Westeros works and evaluating sexuality that a woman flowering at the age of 12 can be married off. This seems to be a commonplace practice in Westeros, which is really, really bad and really, really sad. The other thing, too, about Dantos that I think is often gets kind of obscured is when you you think about his his background, his why why he's so drunk all the time. He's got he's got a significantly tragic backstory in that his entire house was wiped out by Eris Targaryen after the defiance of Dusk and Dale. He saw every single family member killed. And the only person that saved him was the chivalric knight. Basically, Sir Barristan Selmy was the Sir Dantos character in back at the defiance of Dusk and Dale, basically saving, telling Eris that his only reward he wanted was to save this one child from, from Eris's, um justice, if we want to call it that. And that speaks to how this character is so drunk all the time. Well, I think it speaks partially to how he's so drunk all the time. That's how he deals with this tragic horror that she experienced as a child. And that's, isn't that so telling that Dantos' life was saved by the, the purest, truest knight, the knight of the stories who gave him his mercy and made sure it's like the perfect end to a story. And what we see with Dantos is, okay, but what happens after that story is done? What happens to that kid? Right. Who does he grow up into? How do you keep living your life after knowing, oh, I'm just... I'm alive, unlike the rest of my family, out of sheer chance because one guy was nice to me. Mm-hmm. Like that's not that's not act that's not, that doesn't actually feel like an act of grand mercy or divinity. That feels like life is a fucking joke, and you got off lucky because it's a roulette wheel, and you happen mm-hmm. to land on the right one. That's not actually fulfilling. It's it's haunting, and I think you can see that with Dantos. This flip side of the stories. And, you know, the emotion, there has to be something emotionally that drags you through. It can't just be deconstruction and, ha look at how I'm flipping the imagery <laughs> around. There has to be a character core pulling you along. And, you know, Sansa, Sansa just really wants to go home. And the mm-hmm. gods would, above all, feels like home and family to her. And that's why it's such a great little detail that she runs into Arya's cat, as I think about hmm. uh, Balerion the Black Turret. You know, of course, it's Rain's cat, but I think about it as, as Arya's cat now after... She chased it all through the Red Keep, and that's that family connection. She, the Sansa runs into that cat along the way to the gods would. And she thinks about how she's come to love her father's gods as well as her mother's when she used to mostly favor the Seven, because the, her father's gods now remind her of Winterfell and the cradle of her childhood innocence, everything she wants to go home to. So, ironically, they've become the gods of her childhood, even though they're not the gods she paid attention to when she was a childhood, which is a perfect way of capturing how you look back at childhood. It's, it's the things I wasn't paying attention to. Those were the beautiful things. And I never paid attention to them because I was a child. I didn't know how good I had it. Yeah. And now if I went back home to that God's I'd appreciate it all the more. And now Dantos is giving her this chance. You can believe in the nights again. You can believe in the songs and the gods would again. I am your Florian. We'll go home. And Sansa runs back to her room like Charlie Bucket with his golden <laughs> ticket. Run home, Charlie. Run home and don't stop until you get there. And the music is swelling. And then that guy Slugworth jumps out of the darkness to pour cold water on all over Charlie Bucket's dreams. And that's Sandor Clegane in this chapter. He literally like emerges from this from the darkness like a gargoyle, like this horrible shadow <laughs> figure to say no. None of that's real. It's just as fake as it was an hour ago. Sandor is, of course, Dantos' perfect mirror image. He, too, is a not-knight, but he is one who scorns the imagery of chivalry, while still secretly longing for it deep down, (laughs) hence his connection with Sansa, which is the perfect reverse of Dantos. Dantos, on the surface, is saying, I am the embodiment of chivalry now. You have transformed me. I am the true knight. When, as we know on reread, and we'll discuss a little more later, he is completely selling her out. Sandor's is is the, the reverse. On the surface, he's an outright villain. As, as this this conversation starts between Sandor and Sansa, he is aggressive, he is insulting, he is frightening, and he immediately begins hitting on Sansa in his own somewhat more direct way than Dantos. Mm-hmm. Like when he says that she's tall, almost dot dot dot. What's he saying there? Tall, almost tall enough for me. That's mm-hmm. what he's saying, because, of course, Sandor is a very tall man. And what he's saying there is, yeah, Sansa, oh, you seem more like a woman now, almost like a woman I could imagine on my arm. And then he's immediately banishing that thought to the back of his brain and taking it out on her with more insults. And in part, of course, Sandor is just infuriated on Sansa's insistence on still believing in songs and stories. He's taking out his, his cynicism on her because what Sansa is showing him is that his cynicism is a choice. He mm-hmm. doesn't have to be this way. He doesn't have to reflect the brutality of the world. He doesn't have to do any of that. He's choosing to. At least Sansa is trying to get out, which is more than Sandor was doing, drinking himself to death every night. And But despite this villainous and kind of pathetic exterior, you get these little moments that seem to break through and make you, you make you pause and wonder what's going on because George describes his nudge to Sansa down the steps as oddly gentle. Hmm. And then when they go up against Boros Blount, she's clearly terrified of him. Sandor, like, pats on the shoulder and says, don't be afraid of this one. He's nothing. He's a coward. 
bolstering her up, which is, is he would not bother to do if he simply scorned her as, as, a, as a naive fool who needs to get past her dreams. At some level, he wants to protect her and wants to take care of her. And we get this great ambiguity. How are we to understand Sandor's perspective on Sansa? He can't seem to decide whether he wants her to toughen up or hold on to her innocence. When he tells her at the end of this chapter that everyone in this city can lie better than her, you get this great ambiguity. Is that a compliment or is it an insult? And it's kind of both. Mm-hmm. Is he saying that you need to learn how to lie better or is he saying don't learn how to lie better? Preserve your lack of ability to lie as long as you possibly can because that's <laughs> what makes you human and the rest of us are gone. And of course, he broke that rule himself. He broke that hounds never lie rule back in Sansa 1 specifically to save her life. So you see Sansa as this catalyst for transformation in Sandor, getting him outside his rigid boundaries and ideas of what's happened to the world and allow him to become more the true knight he wants to be. And it's, it's not so much like pretending that what happened to him didn't happen or that it's okay you can you can just move past it but this deciding to be uh a merciful person anyway and to take care of people anyway and i think you can see sansa pushing in that direction without being the outright unrealistic transformation that the songs promised george never wants you to forget that sandor is a dangerous violent man and that sansa really can't fully trust him I mean, remember, in A Feast for Crows, he has to die, or at least the hound persona has to die in order for him to assume the role as the gravedigger, is to be the person who is is better than what he is, than what he appears in On the Surface in A Clash of Kings. And, you know, you make a great point about talking about this being a choice in Sanders' part. You know, the, you have that great dialogue scene later in A Clash of Kings between Sansa and Sanders, where Sansa's like, at the end of like him being like, I love killing. Killing is the best. I bet your father loved killing, too. Killing is so fucking great. And Sansa's like, why are you so horrible? Like she's making this, she's making it a choice for him. She's showing him that he doesn't have to be this way. And she's demonstrating that here in this dialogue scene in this this whole scene where they're walking back. I mean, I said it's a it was a bit in my synopsis here. I, I said it was a bit here in the synopsis section of, of this of this of this podcast episode. But I think like it, the bit works because it's starting to like germinate ideas in Sandra Clegane's mind and that he's starting to stand up for her. Like we encounter him again in, in Sansa 3. He's the guy who's like, hey, Sansa, this is this is bad news what's about to happen. But I'm going to brief you real quick about what's going to happen. Here's how you're actually going to get out of this situation. He recognizes who the people are in King's Landing, who the people are in power and how to navigate around powerful people. So in a way, he also presents a form of education to Sansa in the same way that she is kind of being presented with the letter being presented by Dantus Holler. That education is vital for Sansa. And it's I want to say it's even more vital for Sandra Clegane in terms of what Sansa is communicating to him about choice. And I think choice is such an important part of what makes Sandra Clegane an interesting character, but not just an interesting character in of himself, but an interesting character in relation to others around him. Because at the end of Clash of Kings, he's going to leave all of that life behind him to go north. He offers to save Sansa Stark. He offers to take her home. But then, of course, he re-embraces violence again in a storm of swords. We're going to find out in that lovely, lovely, amazing chapter I can't wait to get to in Arya's seventh chapter, sixth chapter in From a Storm of Swords. I think it's sixth, yeah, sixth. when he goes up against Beric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he gets yeah. redeemed again, yeah. It's specifically that he understands he needs to leave the Lannister employ that makes him kind of really different from Dantos because, as we'll get more into at the end of this episode— Dantos is bought and paid for, and Sandor mm-hmm. ultimately decides that he is not. And that, again, that doesn't mean he rides off as a shining paladin. He still, you know, wants to sell Arya at some level, but he also wants to keep her safe at another level. And he's got this this conflict within him about he doesn't want to give it entirely to the dark, but he's really worried if he embraces the light, he'll be exposing himself to the fire again because he thinks to himself at some level, oh, the last time I tried this, last time I embraced being a knight was that toy Gregor had, and mm. look what it got me. So it's, and you know, the, the Blackwater is kind of the ultimate confirmation of that, that the fire awaits you if you try to be a true knight. So he's, he's caught in between and so is Sansa. They, they don't know what will make themselves more vulnerable than try to hold on to their values, but they also want to keep themselves safe. And that, that dynamic, of course, is something we're going to be exploring a lot of throughout Clash of Kings, but I think it gets a really great foundation here and a really great contrast with Dantos. So, taking us to foreshadowing and groundwork, something that stands out really strongly is that Sansa will get another letter to analyze at length from Marjorie at the start of A Storm of Swords, which will also lead her to a, a, a <laughs> garden in that case, but another nature-type area where she can speak unheard by Varys, or so it appears. And I think George is building in these signposts to show how Sansa's relationship to intrigue is changing. You know, here is, is, is an early test, and later on in Storm, she's working at a higher level. The Tyrells are speaking to her, not honestly, but more frankly— <laughs> And she's being encouraged to share her views, whereas neither Sandor nor Dantos really cares what she has to say. 
You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the Tyrells do. And the Tyrells care what she has to say, not because she's an agent, but because it's useful information. So every step along the way, she's moving up. And gradually, she's going to be getting to a position where she's dominating the room. But I think each step of the way, she's she's uh, occupying a, a larger a larger presence in the sphere. Uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting, all the parallels between that scene from Storm and this scene from Clash. You know, we've got a fool. We've got Marjorie and Dante's talking about having people that can, how the stones can can how the stones can listen are listening we've got secret information being conveyed we've got a potential salvation coming for Sansa Stark that all is actually not actual salvation for these these for Sansa so I think like George obviously was well maybe not obviously but was probably looking back at what was happening in Sansa 2 and in, in order to write the storm of swords Sansa 1 which is a really really cool way of, of doing these things of paralleling different things but also kind of graduating up as like as you were saying because she's Starting to speak truth, she's in a storm of swords as she whispers over to Elena Tyrell, like, Joffrey is a monster. Like, that's really, really powerful stuff that we have Sansa's evolution as a character progressing forward from this chapter on into Storm. You could say the Tyrells are just doing a much better job at Dantos at playing the role, that they're very good at not just knowing the script, but keeping up the image, whereas Dantos can't keep up the image. Right there. All right. So now we're on to Riot Watch Part 5. So Riot Watch is our new thing we're going to be doing on the Nauticast. <laughs> yes, indeed. Every single week, it's it's like, oh, well, you know, shit's getting bad for in King's Landing. I wonder what's going to happen with that. Well, so we're going to find out in Tyrion 9, we're going to have a massive fucking riot that's going to blow up. So once more, we get a mention of starvation and the resulting unrest in the city streets, which will again sweep Sansa and Sandra Clegane together one more time. Yes. So we've got the peasants all coming out to the gates of the Red Keep because they've heard that Tyrek Lannister's wedding is happening and they want to get in on the feasting because they're all starving and they are all driven away by joffrey and his crossbow boats and his swords because he's a brave brave king joffrey very charming he is but yeah i love how george builds that up not just to you know get ourselves outside the 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 rarefied environments of the nobles but also so the riot doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere because i think you can see george worrying oh i don't want it to feel like i just had to come up with an action scene or suddenly the peasants exist and have concerns because that's that's a critique you can make of some lesser genre novels is that the people on mass only exist when the plot demands them to, mm-hmm. and otherwise they're just not there. And that's something I think George is, has some issues with at some points in the books, and I think he's specifically working to try to avoid that here by saying, hey, the riot was always coming. It was building up in the background of all these chapters, and then it just, you know, the the final straw happened in Tyrion 9. It's another bit of foreshadowing in terms of the later action scenes in King's Landing. We have Sansa prepared to kill herself, lest she suffer more when the city is taken. Which is a grisly bit of foreshadowing of how Cersei will, to be, will be prepared to kill her when, if they lose the city to Stannis during the Blackwater. So you get the, again, the buildup. The Baratheon brothers kind of hanging as specters over King's Landing throughout the first two-thirds of the book before Stannis marches on the city. And then, yeah, as it was, it was saying, Sansa, I don't think she'd actually have gone through with killing herself. But Cersei, of course, is so far gone that she absolutely would have gone through with it, I think. Right. And I think that points to possibly the end of what happens to Cersei's arc. Maybe in the Windswinter, maybe in A Dream of Spring, we'll find out. That I, I think, like, I, I don't think it looks good for, for Cersei in the long run, as, well, I guess season eight showed us, but I think also <laughs> A Dream of Spring and all the foreshadowing that George is building up for Cersei is, is showing us that Cersei's end is going to be quite tragic and will result in her death. Yeah, she'd rather die than lose always. Mm-hmm. A very Lannister trait there. So, speaking of Cersei a little bit more, in the Dance with, in the Dance with Dragons epilogue, it's noted that, quote, the High Septon had insisted that no girl spend more than seven days in the Queen's service lest Cersei corrupt her. This is, I don't think it's a direct foreshadowing of what's to come, what we see here in Sansa 2, but I do think it's kind of ironic that, you know, Sansa's servants are cycled out every two weeks, a fortnight is two weeks in case guys didn't know. Cersei only gets a week with her servants before they're all cycled out. So she's that much less trustworthy than Sansa and or much more capable of manipulating people into busting her free. It's one or the other. It could be both at the same time. Yeah, no, that's great. That's, again, always those cycles of paranoia in King's Landing. Where yeah, you, you you can't form relationships and no one gets to keep their job for long. And just imagine the alienation that creates at every level. Because if you're a servant in King's Landing, you don't form those bonds with anyone either. Mm-hmm. So it just creates this just a city of cold people constantly using each other. And that, of course, is just perfect for people like Varus or the High Sparrow or <laughs> Kyburn. You know, you benefit from that environment where you you can constantly keep people working against each other and never teaming up against you. So that's that definitely exemplifies. I think George. I think George is constantly dipping into that well in King's Landing. That's always how the, the relationships work there. So one, uh, one final bit of foreshadowing. We get Sandor Clegane demanding a song from Sansa, and Sansa stating that she'll happily sing for him at some point in the future. And wouldn't you know it, but Sandor is once again going to demand this at the Battle of Blackwater, and Sansa will sing for him, though not, not gladly. Sandor was right <laughs> that Sansa was lying about that part. And again, you get that tension. And when we say, you know, 
we say romantic tension between Sandor and Sansa. We're not saying it's a wonderful thing for a grown drunk man in his 20s holding a knife to kiss a 14-year-old girl. We think that's the model for romantic relationship. No. We're saying that <laughs> it's a provocative, interesting way of writing. If you take this objectively threatening situation, you speak to a, an under tension under the surface. I think a lot of times nowadays people just make a one-to-one relationship between tension you find interesting in book and thing you want to see in reality. And I'm not saying there's never any relationship between that, and that's not something we should you know talk about critically. But that relationship is always going to be very individual and to a certain extent unknowable. And I don't think we should automatically say that's the, therefore that's what that must mean. That's the thing you want to see in reality. And I think it is, it's, we, we should talk forthrightly about the romantic tension George works in with Sandor and Sansa with the understanding that no, we do not think this would be remotely appropriate or a good thing if it happened in the real world in front of us. Not just the real world, but also the context of Sansa and Sansa's relationship as it stands right now in the books. Oh, sure. And, she also yeah, I mean, should not go with him. I'm very glad she did not go with him at the Blackwater. That would have ended poorly. Very, very, very poorly. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think like when we're we're looking at the relationship between these two, we're supposed to be like we're supposed to kind of shrug back a little bit from it. At the same time, also acknowledging that it exists and it's a realistic portrayal, I want to say, of, of the relationship there. We've got Sandor Clegane being extraordinarily stunted in his growth of always calling back to his childhood and his being tortured by his by his older brother for believing in these ideals. At the same time, having a character like Sansa Stark coming in and still holding to those ideals makes for an interesting contrast slash uh, intersection between these two characters. And that intersection slash contrast is very important for setting that romantic tension in the story and that overall tension in terms of who Sansa is going to be and who Sandra Clegane is also going to be. Exactly. It's that philosophical tension. It's not just, oh, you big hulking man and you tall pretty woman, although that's definitely in there. (laughs) It's about the sense of, oh, there's unexpectedly we have something in common. And that unexpected nature is key to it. They, They didn't anticipate finding this in each other a sense of things in common and struggles in common and that is the core of the relationship and that's what that's what makes it work so shifting into our discussion portion of the episode i think this is a chapter that i mean i say this about every chapter as we go through but it's, it's one that really does change on reread once you know more and i think we would discuss about how how it changed specifically knowing that it was not Dantos on his own that prompted this meeting, but that it was Littlefinger who prompted it and all that followed because i think that really changes your understanding of what this chapter is about Right, and I, and I think that it's there's such a we talked about the tension before between between Sansa and, and Sandor, but we also talked about the tension between Dantos and Sansa because Dantos is acting as Littlefinger's agent, but he's also acting a bit out of bounds, as you correctly pointed out in the in the episode discussion itself. But first, I want to say before we actually start that, I you know we as we're doing these notes and we we're doing the episode preparation, I always get to enjoy the stuff that you choose for a discussion topic because this is such a fun topic, and I'm so excited that we're talking going to talk about this. So I, I think you know we we have this concept of VAR of having the reputation of being the spy master. And yes, he's my favorite character and all. I've admitted that on Twitter recently. And that sometimes Varus as being both my favorite character and having the reputation of being this master spy master overshadows Littlefinger. And that's precisely how Littlefinger and George would have it. Because despite Varus's subtleties, he's really not subtle with his moves, only with his endgame. And even and by the time we get to A Dance with Dragons, we're really kind of pretty clear about what Varus' what Varus's endgame is. So let's trace a little bit of Dantos and Littlefinger's relationship before we actually kick off the discussion. So as we talked about back in episode 57, which is the Game of Thrones Sansa 5, Dantos Hollard was seen briefly chatting with Littlefinger. Then Dantos shows back up in Clash of Kings Sansa 1 with Sansa saving him from Joffrey. And uh, here's the point where I think is an interesting distinction. It's hard for me to say when exactly Dantos became one of Littlefinger's agents, but I wager it occurs after events from, from Sansa's first chapter from Clash. As I don't think Littlefinger will let a valuable asset endanger himself or Littlefinger's mission or Littlefinger's mission by participating in the tourney of Nats. So now Dantos is back in Clash of Kings Sansa 2, telling Sansa that he's working totally solo and only interested in playing the part of Florian the Fool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Still, I think when we look closely at this, and especially on reread, we should know that Dantos was working with someone. And if we look even closer, it's fucking Littlefinger. So Dantos swearing on his honor as a knight that he's working alone signals that he isn't, given that, well, he isn't a knight. So he's swearing on the honor of something that he actually isn't anymore because his knight who was stripped by him by Joffrey. It's a fun little trick that George likes to pull in writing these chapters where he has the point of view realize that something is a little off. But then they kind of get lost in their head before losing that train of thought, right? And not following up on that observation. Like Sansa 
smartly makes the connection like, oh, wait, he's actually not a knight, but he's swearing on a knight. And then she goes into the full backstory of Dante's Holler and is like, oh, well, he was at the Tourney of Nats. He's a knight who was stripped from him. And then they come back to the dialogue and Santa doesn't necessarily follow up with what's going on with uh, with Dantos' swearing on, on his knightly vows. So we know that Dantos is working with someone. Littlefinger, as is confirmed by at the end of Storm of Swords. And there's an opaque clue in this Sansa chapter when compared against an earlier Sansa chapter back from A Game of Thrones. So we have Littlefinger and Sansa have this conversation back in Sansa 3 from A Game of Thrones where Littlefinger learns something integral about who Sansa Stark is. So this is after Ned Stark is giving the orders on the on the Iron Throne where he dispatches <clears throat> where he dispatches Beric Dondarrion out to go take down Greg Gain, and she's like, oh, they should have sent Loras after him. But then Littlefinger comes up and says, why should you send Loras? So the quote is, quote, Sansa had no choice but to explain about heroes and monsters. The king's counselors smiled. Well, those are not the reasons I'd given, but Littlefinger touched his, had touched her cheek. Mm, fucking love that. His thumb lightly tracing the line of her cheekbone. Actually, I don't love that. I hate that. Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. So when Dantus frames his relationship to Sansa in fairy tale archetypes of Florian Jonquil, we're seeing Littlefinger turning that information that he knows about Sansa into manipulation in order to get Sansa to trust his agent. You know, I'm pretty positive that Littlefinger told Dantos to use that story to frame the relationship. And that works really well with some things you're going to talk about here in a little bit. Now let's get into the speculation territory and talk about the timing of Dantos approaching Sansa Stark here in Clash of Kings Sansa 2. We can't know for certain, but I think Littlefinger sent Dantos to Sansa at this juncture in Clash of Kings and the story because of what occurred in last week's Tyrion chapter. So remember... We were talking about this, that Tyrion offered Harrenhal to Littlefinger in exchange for bringing Lysa, Aaron, and the Vale back into King's, Land, into King's Landing's orbit. This was Littlefinger's response. Littlefinger steepled his fingers and gazed into Tyrion's mismatched eyes. Give me a fortnight to conclude my affairs and arrange for a ship to carry me to Gulltown. Compare this to Dantos talking about how he would get Sansa out of King's Landing. Sir Dantos raised his face to her. Taking you from the castle, that will be the hardest. Once you're out, there are ships that would take you home. I'll need to find the coin and make the arrangements. That's all. So my speculation is that Littlefinger possibly wanted to get Sansa out of King's Landing much earlier than how it occurs chronologically in the story, which is, of course, after the Purple Wedding. Maybe even just as he departs King's Landing for the Vale at this early middle point in A Clash of Kings? Exclamation point, question mark. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for Littlefinger, and much, much more unfortunately for Sansa, Tyrion was dealing with Littlefinger in bad faith, as Littlefinger finds out in Tyrion's sixth chapter from A Clash of Kings. So this quote-unquote rescue is postponed to a later, more favorable time. So that's some of the chronology, and I think that's one of the interesting things when we're looking and evaluating A Clash of Kings is the story underneath of the story. It's so much more of a deeper story to go back on rereading and doing this podcast and doing in rereading because we know the end game of what's going to happen to Dantos Hollard. He's, of course, going to be feathered with arrows out as he attempts to float away from Littlefinger's ship out on Blackwater Bay. But at the same time, like we have to see Littlefinger's work at we have to see Littlefinger's hand at work in the story and in this early juncture in A Clash of Kings. And it's a much more interesting story to know these characters are interacting at a deeper level than what we, than what even appears on page. And it only occurs when we're doing this in a reread podcast. All my favorite twists are those that work on both logistical and emotional levels. Just And that's why I love this one, the reveal that Littlefinger was behind Dantos. Because, yeah, it immediately makes you go back and see, oh, does that add up? And yeah, you get this fascinating reveal of like, oh, it was, you see evidence of Littlefinger's delayed plans in the Sansa chapter. Right after Littlefinger gets this unexpected reveal that he can become Lord of Harrenhal and go off to the Vale, he immediately starts changing his plans regarding Sansa. And we see that via Dantos' actions, and he has to wrench it back after he learns that Tyrion's <laughs> offer was fake. And so Sansa's escape gets delayed until a storm of swords. But I think you can also explore it purely from a character level. What I find fascinating about this is, is the window we get into how Littlefinger's mind works. Because Littlefinger is a non-point of view character. Him and Varys, I think, are arguably the most prominent non-point of view mm-hmm. characters in the entire story. And George has to find ways of getting us inside his head and understanding his psychology. And this is one of the main ones, I think, really, because you can see Dantos is acting just as a mouthpiece for Littlefinger here. So Littlefinger, as a former dreamer himself, as a corrupted believer in the stories and songs, that's why he challenged Brandon to the duel against for Catelyn's hand in the first place, he is perfectly positioned to understand how to manipulate Sansa's desire for the dream to stay real. He has to get Sansa and Dantos to play the roles in that story in order to get her to come along. But 
befitting something being sent by a corrupted dreamer, all the details of this dream are wrong. Dantos isn't a knight. He's lecherous instead of romantic. He's not the charming life of the party who might have a glass of wine or two. He's a sad, gross drunk. Mm-hmm. And he is lying through his teeth to her the whole time so he can sell her for more drinking money. And that, that last detail is not incidental to Littlefinger's scheme. It's the entire mm-hmm. point. He wants to brandish the dream before Sansa like a lure before snatching it away, killing Dantos before her eyes and then telling her he never was loyal to her. That's the point. It's all part of the deconstruction. He wants to take like the break in her dream caused by her father's death and continue to break it further and further open until he has broken her down psychologically into her component parts, allowing him to rebuild her in his image, grooming his perfect daughter wife fantasy surrogate it's, it's 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 pretty gross but that's that's the thing Littlefinger's trying to reenact his childhood myths using sense and dantos as raw material and the point is is that this is the worst possible reaction to your dreams not coming true we see all these angles on that reality from sansa from dantos from sandor all through this chapter and hovering behind them never appearing directly but haunting the entire chapter through his presence is peter baelish because this is what he chose to do with it once that didn't work out the way he wanted it to. And I think there's a, there's a great metaphor for storytelling there, a reflection on George's own process. Like, like this is the worst, most cynical kind of storyteller you can be, the little finger kind, where you just, you just put your characters together and have the mouth empty things to each other to have it reveal it was all for nothing. Like, Littlefinger is a, is a, is a, written as a cynical character who reveals the shallowness of cynicism. Like, he thinks this makes him smart, right? That's the Littlefinger thing. Like, he thinks playing with Dantos and Sansa, Sansa likes this makes him smart, but he's, he's just a more powerful kind of shallow. And I think Sandor Clegane, even though he's, he's violent and untrustworthy and drunk, is, is pushing Sansa towards truth, and Littlefinger's trying to keep her nestled deep within the lie, even as he pretends to be revealing the truth. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I think when we're looking at these characters, Sander, Sansa, Littlefinger, Dantos, we're, we're seeing an evaluation of stories and what they mean, right? I think we, we see the manipulation in the form of Littlefinger and Dantos Hollard of taking story archetypes and making that, turning that into manipulation. With Sander, we're seeing a different thing where he's he knows that the stories are lies or he believes that the stories are lies and are worth just you know, fuck your sir, fuck your sir. Like constantly as the refrain of Sander Clegane. He he has come to believe that true knighthood doesn't exist, that true nobility doesn't exist. Or at least he, he outwardly says this over and over and over again. Like knights are only good for killing. But as you point out, as other people point out as well, he's still kind of a bit Sansa Stark. He's still deep, deep, deep down inside. He's still wanting that kind of nobility, that outward sense of saving the damsel in distress as he's going to do at the end of Sansa's arc in A Clash of Kings. He's going to try to, quote, save the damsel in distress. Of course, because he's a broken drunkard, even at the end of A, of a Clash of Kings, it's still it's still not exactly what, uh, what Sansa needs at that point in time. And then Sansa Stark is hovering above it all, just being the person who is starting to come to understand that the stories are stories, yes, and that they still... And that there is, we should, and that she should have evaluate these stories in a realistic lens and determine the truth and veracity of the stories compared against reality. But at the same time, also understanding the value of stories, understanding the value of nobility and chivalry and these different concepts. And that's all really excellent storytelling by George's part. And it's all really excellent storytelling in this specific chapter, chapter in Sansa's story and her entire arc as a, as a whole. It's something Stephen Atwell said very well about Sandor when he confronts Beric and the Brotherhood in the Storm of Swords, the chapter you were talking about earlier, that the reason Beric specifically freaks Sandor out so much isn't just the fire. It's that, oh, here's the true knight all Mm -hmm. along. He's real, which means I might have to live up to that image, too. (laughs) I don't have the excuse anymore of saying it's fake, of saying there are no true knights, so why don't I go around killing children? Everyone else is killing children. I may as well, too. Here's a true knight going out of his way to defend the people. So that means that's an option for you, Sandor. And Sansa, in her own way, is trying to communicate that to him, too. And she says, like, Gregor was no true knight or I, I, you know, mother have mercy, gentle the soul within him. She's saying you have the potential to be a better person than you're being. And that, you know, that doesn't mean nothing in this kind of environment. That means all the more in this kind of environment. And I, I think that... That is specifically something that that Littlefinger is far beyond understanding and that Dantos, I think, is far beyond understanding. But there's that that kernel of possibility there that I think George likes to likes to bring up, even in these most most bleak of environments. 
Right. When we start this this episode talking about all the dark theories you don't want to come true, but at the end of all of the darkness, there has to be some light. And the end of Sandra Clegane's story, as told in A Feast for Crows at least, there is some light in the that, that the hound identity can actually die and that Sandra Clegane can regain his name and perhaps regain a sense of true knighthood and true nobility and true chivalry as well. So I think that about wraps us up for this episode on A Clash of Kings Sansa 2. Thanks, as always, everyone, for listening. Thank you, of course, also to our patrons for supporting us, too. And if you guys have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lord Clint Esquire, Wolf in the West, Lady Veneris of the House Colgarian, first of her name, the overworked Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portraitist of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Creator of Arts and Maker of Drawings, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Lady Madeline Rivers, Justicia of the Trident, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtenay, What Did the Five Fingers Say to the Face, Pen Rose, Lady Dillsdale, Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, and our newest High Lord, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, proud soy boy of Summerhall, defender of the Fifth Book, Warden of the Shy Maid Chapters, and Swing Dancer with Dragons. Thank you to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome Prince Matthew of House Targaryen. Yes, thank you very much to our High Lords and Ladies. An excellent, excellent name, Prince Matthew. That is an excellent name. We always talk about how our small council tables has, has to grow. Well, these High Lords and Ladies, we have to also buy a new table, care, apparently, for you guys now, guys and gals now. So, join us next week as we jump back to the Riverlands where Arya and her companions are trying to get by without any adults. Wow, I think it's going to go really, really well for them, is it? No, I know I'm afraid not. Remember how we were just talking about finding a light in the darkness? No, not in this chapter. Arya 5, this is one of the most exceptionally bleak back-to-front chapters in the entire series, I think. This is the one where the adults abandoned them, and Lamy Greenhands dies, and it's just, it's just sadness all the way down. So we're going to have a great time. Oh, it's gonna be so much fun! And hey, we get to we get to hang out with Sanders' brother again at the end of the chapter. That'll be so much fun! I right? missed him so much. Right? Yeah. Oh God. Life oh. of the party, Gregor Clegane. <laughs>